0: You can be seated, get your Bible out, and we are in the 42nd chapter of the book of Genesis. The 42nd chapter of the book of Genesis. Again, Father, we ask that you bless our Bible study now. Speak to our hearts, Lord, as we go through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I purchased some Christian videos the other day, and they came with a bumper sticker inside the package. I'm not sure that you can read it, but I'll read it for you. It says, Love Wins. Love Wins. I'll bet Joseph had a similar bumper sticker plastered on the bumper of his chariot. For 13 years, Joseph had been used and abused and rejected and refused first by his brothers then by the Egyptians nothing in his life went right every promotion was followed by a setback every appointment ended in a disappointment Joseph could have become angry he might have become bitter he would have given up but you see love wins and Joseph loved his father back in Canaan He even loved his brothers who had treated him dirty. He loved the Egyptians around him. Most of all, Joseph loved God. And in tonight's chapters, when those brothers wind up on Joseph's doorstep, though you might think he should have sought revenge and gotten even, instead, Joseph shows love. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. To steal Joseph's life down to a bumper sticker, and there you got it right there, love wins. The rest of Joseph's story dwells on how he treats his brothers when they're reunited. And amazingly so, it forms a picture of how Jesus will treat his brothers, the Jews, in the last days. Well, chapter 42 begins with one of the 13 famines mentioned in the Bible. You know, a few of us have experienced a true famine. The crops wither in the soaring heat. The winds howl and blow through the fields. They lift off the topsoil. It swirls around. The dust settles back to earth as a powder on fence posts and over houses. Empty rain clouds hover overhead and release a drop or two, just sort of teasing not easing the problem. Once fertile fields turn into a dust bowl, nothing grows. There's nothing to eat. And this was the situation in which Jacob found himself. Famine had hit the land of Canaan. Verse 1 tells us, When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? Now that's a really comical line. You might not catch it at first. The family's on the verge of starvation when they hear there's grain in Egypt. And Jacob says to his dumb sons, Why are you standing around here looking at each other? Somebody needs to go down to Egypt. And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. Apparently, Jacob was still mourning the loss of his son Joseph, and he probably held the older boys responsible, and he's not going to trust them with Rachel's other son, Benjamin. Verse 5, And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. What a moment that must have been. Who would have thunk it? When Judah handed that bratty little brother Joseph over to those slave traders and pocketed the 20 shekels, There is no way Joseph could have ever imagined that one day those same brothers would be standing there bowing down before him in desperate need. And yet that's what God had seen from the very beginning, wasn't it? That was the prophecy. That was the dream that Joseph had had. You remember that dream? That was the one that had enraged his brothers. Their bundles of wheat bowed down to Joseph's bundle of wheat. Now the dream they'd all scoffed at and mocked at and resented his being fulfilled by God's providence. Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Now I picture Joseph sitting up on his throne in this long, ornate Egyptian hall. He's interviewing entourages from all over the world. When he notices some, some familiar faces in the line, he sort of squints. He's about 40 years old now. His eyes are getting a little dim. And so he just kind of squints out there and he says, Boy, those guys look familiar. And then it hits him. Those are my, there's Reuben. There's, there's Issachar. There's Ju, those are my brothers. Imagine Joseph's emotions at that moment. It amazes me that he could hold himself back. But apparently, he makes a split-second decision to play this out a bit before he reveals his identity. Perhaps the Holy Spirit spoke to him and sort of restrained him. He gulps hard. He musters a grim look on his face, and he speaks in a way that disguises his voice. Then he said to them, Where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Remember, by now, Joseph is nearly 40 years old. He's sporting an Egyptian haircut, no doubt. He's wearing Egyptian clothes. He's speaking the Egyptian language. Besides, the last time his brothers saw him, his coat of many colors actually fit. Now he's got that middle-aged bulge, I'm sure. And besides all that, they thought Joseph was dead. Never in their wildest dreams did they expect to see Joseph again. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today. And one is no more. And how Joseph was not able to stop them right there and dwell on that thought for a moment or two, I don't know. If I had been him, I would have probed into that a little bit. Well, what happened to this other brother? Tell me about that, please. What he's going to do is he's going to put his brothers through a few tests to determine if they're truly sorry, if they're truly repentant over the way they treated him before he reveals to them his identity. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you saying, you are spies. Now remember, there is a species of prophecy in the Bible known as typology. We talked about this before. Oftentimes, God will use Old Testament people and stories to cast light and give insight on New Testament truths. And the life of Joseph is a vivid example. Joseph's life is a type of the life of Jesus. And how Joseph treats his brothers after their rejection of him forms a pattern, really, of how Jesus will treat the Jews in the last days when he returns. There are basically three phases to Joseph's dealings with his brothers. Here, he relies on mystery. Later, he will reveal his majesty. Finally, he will provide them with ministry. At this point, Joseph is relying on mystery. He knows them, but they don't know him. And there are also three phases in how Jesus will deal with Israel in the last days. His brothers who have rejected him. When Jesus returns at his second coming, he will come In all majesty. Afterwards he will minister to the Jews. Throughout the kingdom age. His ministry will take place. But at the moment. Even today. He is relying on mystery. You see the Jews don't recognize their brother. Paul Harvey says that providence is God acting anonymously. And this is how Jesus is working among Israel today. He is acting anonymously. Anonymously, there is mystery. The brothers don't recognize the favored son. But the day of revelation is about to come. Verse 15. In this manner you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not leave this place unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother. And you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested. To see whether there is any truth in you or else By the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Of the twelve brothers, remember, Joseph and Benjamin were the only sons of Rachel. They were full brothers, whereas the other brothers were Joseph's half-brothers. The same father, but different mothers. And when Joseph was shipped off, Benjamin was just a toddler. Now he wants to make sure he gets to see him again. And so he says, you know, you've got to go back, you've got to bring Benjamin Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house. But you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Joseph is going to teach them a lesson on substitution. One brother will remain until the younger is retrieved. And this is what the Jews failed to understand about Jesus. That he came as their substitute. That he came to die in their place, to suffer their penalty. What the Jews today need is a lesson on substitution. Verse 21, Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear Therefore, his distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak? There's always somebody that's got to say, I told you so. (laughs) Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. In other words, their consciences were still guilty. Twenty years later, they're still feeling the Pain, the guilt of what they've done. They remembered what they did to Joseph. That his squeals and his screams fell on deaf ears. And Reuben tells the man, this is payback. But they did not know that Joseph understood them. For he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Their interpretation of the situation moved Joseph's heart. Even after two decades, his brothers still carried guilt and regret over how they had treated him. And that touched Joseph, that moved his heart toward his brothers. He wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And why he took Simeon, we're not sure. From the incident back in chapter 34, you remember the story of Shechem and how Simeon suggested that you know, the men of Shechem be circumcised and while they were moaning and groaning and trying to recover from their surgery, they went in and killed them all and took revenge over raping their sister and all. That, that whole messy affair. I mean, Simeon was the ringleader. Simeon apparently was a violent man. I think it's possible that Simeon was the ringleader in the plot to get rid of Joseph and perhaps that's why Joseph picked Simeon to stay behind. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. And I love Joseph's generosity. You know, he's basically telling his brothers that they can't buy his blessing. His favor, his forgiveness is not for sale. It's a free gift. And you know, so it is with God's favor. You can't buy God's blessing. Whatever you try to give to God, He just puts back in your sack. Along with all the grain He gives you and all the blessings He pours out upon you. Grace fills your sack and it gives you back what you paid. God's favor is a free gift. But notice the brother's reaction to grace. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money and there it was in the mouth of his sack. And so he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts, rather than rejoice, then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? He was worried that it was, uh, that they were going to be accused of having stolen it. You know, this is the same reaction that the Jews today have toward God's grace. This is the same reaction that many of our friends have toward God's grace. They don't understand it. It scares them. How can God be so generous? How can be, God be so kind? And, and how can God, you know, give us so many blessings and put our money back in our sack? It scares people. There's got to be a catch. You know, they, they, God's blessing has to be earned. That, that's so many people's approach, you know. Um. You know, they have the E.F. Hutton version of salvation. You got to earn it. They just can't believe it's a free gift. Verse 29. Then the brothers went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. And and as they're talking, they're starting to unpack their bags and all. And then it happened, as they emptied their sacks, that surprisingly, each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. Again, they just can't get over this. Grace. They suspect a setup. They they think they're going to be accused of theft. Apparently, the idea that this Egyptian... Just wanted to love them. Just wanted to bless them. That that never crossed their mind. That never even computed. That would just be too good to be true. I hope you don't have that attitude toward God and God's love for you. I hope you're enjoying God's grace tonight. I hope you're not trying to earn it or deserve it. I hope you've just received it and you're thankful for it. Hey, there's nothing we can do To merit the goodness that God has shown toward us. We can only just receive grace gracefully. That's about all we can do. Verse 36. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Jacob didn't share Joseph's belief in God's providence, did he? Here's what Jacob sung. No one loves me, this I know, for my misfortunes tell me so. But with just a little faith, just a little confidence in God's promises, he could have changed the words, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Sometimes we're singing one of those two songs, aren't we? He bemoans all that has happened. All these things are against me, but these things weren't against him. God was working for him to reunite him with Joseph, to preserve him through this famine. All these things were working together for good. Guys, when trouble strikes, when circumstances hit, when your plans begin to unravel, trust in God's providence. God is at work behind the scenes, working things out for your good and for his glory. Verse 37. Then Reuben spoke to his father, (coughs) saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son will not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. That would just be it for me. And it'll take a hungry stomach to change Jacob's mind. And that's what God arranges in chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him... We will not go down, for the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Now, this is reading between the lines a bit. But you get the impression that nobody, is, nobody in the family is spending any sleepless nights worrying about Simeon, don't you? <laughs> I mean, there was no hurry to go back for Simeon's sake. He could sit down there and rot for all they cared but when they got hungry again, we got to do something. Verse six. And Israel said, "Why did you deal so wrongly with me as to tell the man whether you, still, whether you had still another brother?" And now you should have never mentioned little Ben here. But they said, "The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family saying, "Is your father still alive? Have you another brother?" And we told him according to these words. And We could have lied to him. Didn't you hear Pastor Sandy's sermon this morning? Could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go. That we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. In other words, dad, if you don't send Ben with us, we're all going to die anyway. So what's the difference? I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do, so, do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey." Excuse me. Spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Butter him up, man. Give him a little honey, some pistachios, some almonds. Boy, I love those little, what are they called, Jordan almonds? The candy-coated almonds? Those are the best. Give him a few Jordan almonds, you know. Butter him up a bit. And, And notice what he says here. And take double money in your hand. Now think about that for a minute. Take double money in your hand. If each one of the ten brothers who were returning didn't take one shekel, but took double money, took two shekels, then how many shekels would that be? Ten times two would be 20 shekels. How ironic. Remember that Joseph was sold into slavery for 20 shekels? And take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise. Go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your older brother and Benjamin, your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. If it it happens, it happens. Just kind of a totally helpless feeling. Jacob just sort of casts himself on the mercies of God. And I'm sure he didn't realize it at the time. But do you know what? The mercies of God, guys, is really the safest place to be, isn't it? So the men took that present in Benjamin. And they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt. And they stood before Joseph. Now when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home. And slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. We're going to have a feast. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house, which would have been a palace, remember? Joseph is second in command in all of Egypt. This would be like a visit to the White House. And I'm sure the brothers are all wondering, why are we getting the royal treatment? Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house, and they said, it is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may seek an occasion against us and fall upon us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. In other words, this trap, he said, is about to swing shut. Verse 19. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, O sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. But it happened when we came to the encampment, that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, so that we have brought it back in our hand, and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sack. They're just pleading innocence. We, we didn't know this happened. We, we just opened the sacks, and there was the money. But he said, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God is... And the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And who is this that brings peace to their hearts? Who is this that brings assurance to them of the king's favor? It's an unnamed servant. And it is amazing that throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament... Unnamed servants appear over and over again as types of the Holy Spirit. For He is the unnamed servant who does what? He comes to our hearts to bring assurance of our salvation. To to bring to our hearts comfort of God's love. The Spirit is the servant. He's unnamed in the scripture because He speaks not of Himself, but He speaks of Jesus. That's His job. Not to draw attention to Himself, but to turn our attention toward Jesus Christ. That's why He's often Typified as an unnamed servant. It's the Spirit of God who comforts us and gives us rest and assures us and brings us peace. Just as this unnamed servant did. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water. And they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Thank you, Thomas. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. And then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother, so Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. When Joseph saw little Benny, he just couldn't hold back his emotions. I mean, tears started to well up in his eyes. This is his mother's son. This is his full brother. He barked out some excuse, you know, and ran off to cover his eyes and to keep his his disguise. Joseph longs here to be reconciled with his brothers. But it's not quite time yet, is it? And this is the situation that Jesus is in today. He too loves the Jewish people. He loves the brothers that have rejected him. He yearns for them and he longs for them. And he wants to fulfill his promises to them. But Israel is not quite yet ready to repent and to open their hearts to Jesus. The repentance of Israel is not quite ripe, not yet. Verse 30. And he went into his chamber and wept there Then he washed his face and came out and he restrained himself and said, serve the bread. So they set him in a place by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And this is why. God kept the Hebrew people in Egypt for 400 years. Because the Egyptians had this thing of not intermingling with foreigners. And this would be a great way for God to keep His people pure and separate from the pagans. And not have them intermarrying with the Egyptians. The Egyptians' attitude was a safeguard to keep God's people separated unto themselves. I mean... How can you get a date with an Egyptian if they won't even eat with you? Good protection. Verse 33 And they set before him the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his birthright. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. The brothers all sit down at the table. They've got these cute little place, you know, name cards right in front of their seats. And they all sit down at the table, and they're all in order. In birth order. Now, how could this possibly be? Statistically, the odds of seating 11 people at a table, all in correct birth order, would be about 1 in 36 million if it happened by chance. It'd be about 1 in 36 million. I'm sure the brothers now are starting to get suspicious. What is going on here? Then he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. Chapter 44. And he commanded the steward of his house saying, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest in his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. Joseph is about to reveal himself, but he has one more test for them. Now, as soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. And when they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his servant, Get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. Now, the occultists in Egypt, they would do this thing that was sort of like reading tea leaves. They would try to predict the future by floating little slithers of gold and silver in a particular cup. And then they would try to read the shadows and thereby divine the future and try to predict the future and so forth. Now, I am certain that Joseph did not participate in this pagan practice. It would have been a sin. It's just part of the ruse, the, you know, the masquerade that he's trying to create here. He wants to accuse Benjamin of stealing this special silver chalice. When he did, when, when he would accuse him of that, here's what he's thinking. Joseph is about to see how the brothers are going to treat Benjamin. Are they going to treat Benjamin the same way that they treated him? In other words, when they go back and they find that silver chalice in Benjamin's bag. What are the brothers going to do? Oh yeah, he's the guilty one. Let us go. Are they going to sell out Benjamin to save their own skin? That's what they did to Joseph, wasn't it? They sold him without a blink of an eye. How are they going to respond? See, Joseph's setting this up to test his brothers to see if they're truly repentant over the sin that they had committed against him. He wants to see if they've learned their lesson. So he overtook them and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. We we, we didn't take your chalice. What do you mean take your silver chalice? We would never do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money, which we found in the mouth of the sacks. How then can we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. Oh, boy. If they only knew what was about to happen next. And he said, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. He's setting them up. He's saying, you know, he'll be my slave, and the rest of you will be blameless. You can go back home. You can forget about the whole thing. How are they going to treat Benjamin? That's what he's testing. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. And so he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes. They were so grieved. They were so devastated. And each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Verse 14. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. And he was still there. And they fell to the ground before him. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Again, this was all part of Joseph's scheme. You know, he's acting like he was this Egyptian and he had these supernatural powers to know that they had the cup and so forth. Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or, or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. No, we, we were caught red-handed. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. Now it's interesting. Judah is the spokesman here. And he takes the blame. He says, we were caught red-handed. We took the cup. It, it just ended up in Benjamin's bag. Is what he's trying to say. He's trying to save his kid brother here is what he's trying to do. Verse 17. But Joseph said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Twenty years ago, that's exactly what they did. They sold out Joseph and they went back up and lived happily ever after, so they thought. Are these selfish brothers going to do the same thing? How are they going to treat Benjamin? Benjamin? He sets it all up for them to walk off and leave them. You know, guys, there are two prerequisites that God has for us that we have to meet before we can receive God's blessing. The first prerequisite is repentance. You've got to repent. And the second prerequisite is faith. That's why Jesus said, repent and believe. That's why Peter on the day of Pentecost said, repent and believe for the remission of sin. Repentance and faith are our part. When we repent of our sin or we show God we're willing to change, we're willing to turn from what we've been doing, and we put our faith in God to help us, when we do that, then God begins to work in our lives. He pours out His power into our lives. He begins to work changes on our behalf. Sometimes, though, God must wait to bestow His blessing Until he tests our repentance. Are we really sorry for what we've done? Are we truly repentant of the damage we've caused? Or are we just sorry we got caught? You know, are we really... Do we really want to change? Do we really want to make a break? Do we really want to be something different? Or are we just sorry for the consequences of what we did yesterday? Are we willing to surrender our will to Jesus Christ and do whatever it takes to avoid making those same mistakes again? Sometimes those are the tests that God puts us through. You know, He wants us to be repentant, not just sorry we got caught. Verse 18, Then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh, My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? Now he's going to explain it to him. And we said to to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. (laughs) His brother is dead, yeah, okay. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me. That I may set my eyes on him, and we said to my lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your younger youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face. You shall see my face no more. So it was when he went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my lord. And our father said, Go back and buy us a little food. But we said, We cannot go down if our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, I do not, If I do not bring him back to you, then I will bear the blame before my father forever. Judah is taking his promise seriously. He, he is standing up for Benjamin. Verse 33. Verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. Now, this is amazing love. This is amazing love for both Jacob and for his brother, Benjamin. Judah is willing to swap places with Benjamin. He is willing to give up his life to save the life of his youngest brother and in turn save the life of his father. You know, it's interesting. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he he calls Judah's speech the most moving address in all the word of God. I think that might be true. Another commentary I read stated this. This is one of the manliest, most straightforward speeches ever delivered by any man For depth of feeling and sincerity of purpose, it stands unexcelled. And it sounds so much like Jesus, doesn't it? Just as Judah gave himself up for Benjamin, for the heavenly Father's sake, for the love of his brothers, you and me, Jesus was also willing to swap places with us. He was willing to die so that we could be set free. Perhaps this was why Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. Chapter 45. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. In other words, this is going to be a very private moment. When he reveals himself to his brothers. Salvation is always a very private moment. When Jesus reveals himself to us. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers. And he's about to drop the bomb. I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him. For they were dismayed in his presence. And the Hebrew word that's translated dismayed there means to tremble inwardly, literally to palpitate. They started shaking. Boy, when these guys realize that they've been doing business with their long lost brother Joseph, they literally start shaking in their boots. They're physically moved. And this is how the Jews in the last days will react when they realize that the one that they have rejected, Jesus of Nazareth, is indeed the Savior of the world. On that day, their bundles of wheat will bow down before his bundle of wheat. Zechariah 12 verse 10 says that they will grieve over the one that they have pierced, just as Joseph's brothers grieve here. Well, verse 4 says, And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near, and then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. And, and, it, and understand, at this point, anything can happen now. All he's done is said, I'm, I'm Joseph, that you sold into Egypt. You remember that, guys? That, that's all that's happened here. I mean, the hammer can fall next. Joseph can snap his fingers and the torturers suddenly appear, bring out the ball and chains and take them prisoners. All of a sudden, little Joe, the brother they sold into slavery, all of a sudden, he now has the upper hand. Hey, what would you do if you suddenly had the upper hand on your enemies? How, how would you react if suddenly the destiny, the fate of your enemies was in your hands? I'm going to tell you how Joseph reacted. Love wins. Love wins. Verse 5. But now, do not therefore be grieved, nor angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. What a statement! The pit, Potiphar's house, the prison, now the palace. He says, it wasn't you guys, it was all God. God was at work. And Joseph continues, And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Several years ago, a Jewish rabbi by the name of Harold Kushner wrote a book entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It actually made the top of the New York Times bestseller list. It was there for almost a year. And here basically was the thesis of his book. Though God loves us, He is not all-powerful. He's good, but He's not sovereign. And thus, when bad stuff happens, it's because there are events that are outside of God's control. In his book, Kushner suggests... We learn to love God and forgive him despite his limitations. Us forgive God? Hey, Rabbi Kushner's God is not the true God. He's not the God revealed in the Bible. And he's certainly not Joseph's God. Joseph's God is sovereign over all circumstances. Joseph's God arranges and orders our lives through his overarching will and according to his predetermined plans. You see, Joseph served a big God. A God with no limitations. A God who does what he pleases without getting our approval first or making sure that his methods suit us. Joseph's God is big enough to even take the sick stuff. The stuff... The sin that's been released into the world. The evil that man might muster. God is a big God who's able to even take that evil and use it for good and for His glory. Joseph's God, in fact, specializes in turning bad into good. Guys, Joseph's life teaches us that God is always in control. Whether it appears that way to us or not. In the rough times, in the dark places... Joseph remained confident that his God loved him and that his God had a purpose for him. And I think it would please God if we all left with that same attitude tonight. I think it would. The situations you face today are not the result of happenstance. There are no accidents in God's plan. Joseph's God was a big God. He was a sovereign God. And He was a loving God who is always in control. I think it would please God if we left tonight trusting Him. Joseph assures his brothers that God was behind all that had happened. And then he tells them in verse 9, Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. Goshen was east of the Nile Delta, sort of northeast of the Egyptian capital of Memphis. It was the most fertile region in all of Egypt. It was a great place to herd cattle. It would be perfect for Jacob and his family. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. For there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is in my mouth that, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. And I wish I could have been a fly on the wall to hear that conversation. What a moving scene. The family's reunited. There's forgiveness. Joseph buries the hatchet. You know, he forgives his brothers. They weep on each other's neck. They hug each other. What a wonderful, wonderful scene. Verse 16. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, "'Say to your brothers, do this. Load your animals and, and depart and go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat of the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come.' And also, do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. And this is what God the Father says to us when we come to Jesus. Don't worry about what you're giving up. Don't worry about what you're leaving behind. When you come to Jesus Christ, God gives you the best. When you come to Jesus, you leave behind a land of poverty for a land of plenty. Verse 21. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts, according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt, and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. And so he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. What a great swap. I mean, they get all this for a few pistachios and almonds. And isn't that the Christian life? We give him our little bit. We give him all that we are. We give him our broken heart. We give him our sin-stained lives. We give him our failures, our weaknesses. We, We give him a few pistachios, and a couple of almonds. And what does he do for us in return? He gives us carts full of blessing. But Jesus says to us as well, see that you do not become troubled along the way. And this is the challenge of the Christian life. We are headed for a land of plenty. We are headed for a blessing beyond our minds can imagine. Guys, heaven will be heavenly. So don't get distracted along the way. Don't get troubled in the journey. Stay out of trouble. <laughs> Keep focused on the goal. Continue in your faith. Verse 25. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob their father. And look how they break all this news. Joseph's alive now. He thought The old man thought he was dead. He thought he's dead for 20 years. And, and, and he's an old guy. You, you know, he probably just had a pacemaker put in. I don't know. And they almost killed a man. And they told him saying, Joseph is still alive. And he is governor over all the land of Egypt. No lenient, no nothing. Hey, Joseph is still alive. And notice, and Jacob's heart stood still. The old man literally had a heart attack. Oh, he grabbed it. I'm about to have the big one. (laughs) Literally, his heart skipped a beat. Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, And when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. And then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And isn't it interesting? At the low points in his life, he's always referred to as Jacob. When he doubts, when he fears, he's Jacob. But when he rises up in faith, as he does here, he becomes Israel, prince of God. Governed by God. It's sad that for 20 years Israel thought that his son was dead, but in reality, Joseph was alive and well. And it's sadder still that the nation Israel has been in a similar state for even longer. For the last 1,972 years, the Jews have assumed that Jesus is dead, when in reality, he is alive and well. And yearns to be reunited with them. And that's probably not just true of Israel. There are probably people that you can think of tonight. Who believe that Jesus is dead. But in reality, he is alive. And he loves them. And he yearns to be reunited with them. And tonight, I want us to close in prayer. For all of those people. That we can think of. That are in that situation. And I want us to remember. Would you? Would you remember that love wins? Father, we thank you for this wonderful story. These glorious truths. And Father, we do pray for the peace of Jerusalem tonight. We pray for, we pray for your people Israel who still, for the most part, live in a state of rejection. And yet Jesus loves them so, and is yearning to be reunited with them. I pray that you'll turn their hearts one by one, and that you'll work among your people even in these last days. And Father, we know of not just Jewish people, but Gentiles as well, friends of ours, who also, Lord, don't realize that you're alive and well, and that you have a plan for their lives and a purpose for them. And that you yearn for them and that you want to be reunited with them. Father, we pray for our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones. We ask, Lord, that you open their eyes and you help them to see. And that they, too, would come to a place of repentance and a place of faith so that their eyes can be opened and so that they can receive of your grace. And speaking of your grace, Lord. We have all opened our bags. And you've given us back our money. You've given us blessing untold. And you won't let us pay anything for it. You won't let us give you anything in return for it. You've just told us to believe. And to trust and to receive. Father, the least we can do is to be thankful. Is to be thankful. And to eat the grain. And to rejoice in the blessing. And to be the people you want us to be. Strengthen us tonight, Lord. Bless us this coming week. Father, so much is going to happen this week. Pastors are coming in. Speakers are coming in. Lord, we pray for a special blessing on our church this week. We thank you for all of the volunteers that are going to help out in the mornings, in the afternoons, in the evenings. The worship team. We pray for Josh, Lord, that you'll bless him as he leads in worship. We pray for Pastor James as he's orchestrating it all. and Bob as he helps out and Lisa as she's cooking. and Just all the different activities that are going on. Kathy as she ministers to the pastor's wives. And, And every person who has a part to play, we pray for them this week. That you'll just bless them in a wonderful way. And that you'll use this week, Lord, to further your work in this world that we live in. We pray these things tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.